from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter, and coming up, we're talking about an asteroid that changes color. And of course, taking listener questions about all things in this beautiful universe. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, and you can follow along online or leave a voicemail by going to spaceradioshow.com. And in today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about we're all connected, man. But first, the news. Hello, space cadets. Welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Ohio State and the Flatiron Institute. And for the next half hour, your agents of the stars. I got an exciting show for you today on Space Radio, where we talk about all the amazing things in this universe. Surprisingly short show for the content. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern here at Spaceman Studios in New York City. So leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com to get yourself on on the air you can also follow along with our space cadets on our live streams on youtube and twitch tuning in live from around the world including but not limited to warsaw poland england london uk which is also england morgantown west virginia a y'all from bell city alabama eureka california washington state vipava slovenia athens greece and buckhead georgia y'all there too we will take questions that you send on those live streams seriously folks i prepped like four minutes okay seriously you need to make this show happen for me get those questions in Before I start taking calls, I wanted to share some interesting bits of news I caught recently. And man, there's something funny going on with asteroid 6487 Galt. Hmm. Have you ever heard of this asteroid? No, neither have I until I read this news article. Apparently, some astronomers have caught it changing color. It's not visible. This is all happening in the infrared part of the spectrum, but it changed color from a very, very red infrared to a slightly less red infrared, but detectable and measurable and totally legit. So naturally, we start asking what in the universe is going on with this little asteroid. It's a little rinky-dink asteroid, just a couple miles across no one would care about it. In fact, I'm surprised it was even being observed, but there's something funny. There is another funny thing going on with a 6478 Galt is that it has two jets. It has two streams, it has two tails of material coming off it. Now, normally when you see tails, you think comets, but 6478 Galt is definitely not a comet. It's very, very rocky. It's not icy. It's not, it's definitely not made of comedy stuff. So what's going on? The astronomers think, and this is a hypothesis, so we know it's changing colors. We know it has these tails. The astronomers think it is not aliens. Already the space cadets are chiming in, claiming it's aliens and I am scolding all of you. It is not aliens. It is physics. What's happening is something called the Yorp effect. And I swear I was making any of this up, but I'm not. Yorp effect, Y-O-R-P, for the Yarkovsky, O'Keefe, Radievsky, Paddock effect, named for the people who figured this out. Sunlight is shining onto this asteroid. 
And, but asteroids all lumpy and weird. And so the light bounces off of the asteroid in different ways, depending on, on where the light is striking the asteroid. And this can actually cause a slight rotation, just a little nudge, just like, like breathing on a merry-go-round, which isn't much, but over the course of billions of years, it can spin up this asteroid. And this asteroid is spinning, and we think it's spinning fast enough that the outer layer of dust has blown off of it, is now creating these tails and revealing a, a younger, fresher surface underneath it that's just a little bit bluer. So this is very similar to Greg. Uh, once a year, we spin Greg up really, really fast, and then all the dirt and dust that he's accumulated over the year just goes flying off in these tails. And you know what? He looks a few years younger every time we do that. So that's what's happening. Uh, the Yorp effect, we think, this is a hypothesis, the Yorp effect on 6478 Galt throwing off its outer layers, making these tails, revealing a younger surface, which we can capture through the shift of its light. Now, there are millions upon millions of asteroids, and ones that have tails that we see spinning like this, number in the uh, 20. 20 asteroids out of millions this is happening to, and this is the first time we've caught this color-changing effect. Very, very cool news. I love it when all these cool physics comes together. That's the latest and greatest when it comes to space. It's time to have a conversation. We've got some voicemails ready to go. Greg, why don't you load one up and play the tape? Hello, Paul. This is Randy from Dripping Springs, Texas. How do we know the distant stars are from the Earth? Ooh, really, really fun question, Randy. Thank you so much for asking. How do we know, how do we measure distances in space? This is one of the most difficult things to, to wrap our heads around because like on Earth, we can just measure stuff. Uh, we can walk over to it. We have lasers, like we have, you know, satellites. But if I just say, like, I just casually say, like, oh, yeah, that star is three and a half thousand light years away. How did I come up with this? We have a bunch of different techniques, depending on how far away something is. The closest, when things are relatively close, like within a few thousand light years, we can use a technique called parallax, where if you wiggle, like close your eyes back and forth, one at a time, back and forth, back and forth, things shift their positions. Things shift their positions relative to a background based on change in perspective. This is called parallax. And you can measure the angle of the shift. You know how far apart your eyes are. You build a triangle. You do a little bit of trigonometry that you forgot in high school. And you can calculate a distance. Now, to measure stuff in space, which is really far away, we need big triangles. We're measuring really tiny angles. So our different perspectives are the positions of the Earth in the solar system. We look at a star in like the summer, and we look at the same star in the winter, and if it's wiggled, then we can measure that angle, we can calculate a distance. So we use the method of parallax. Going further out from that, you need, we need some more sophisticated techniques. And one of our cornerstones is something called a standard candle, which is if you know 
how bright something should be, you can compare that to how bright it looks and you can calculate a distance. But this only works if you know exactly how bright something should be as if you were right there in your face and it was blasting you in the face. There are a few things like Cepheid variables, like certain kinds of supernova, sometimes galaxies themselves, that we know how bright they're supposed to be, so we can compare that to how bright they look, we can calculate a distance. Even further than that, we switch to different techniques, things like standard rulers, like if you know how big something is supposed to be, you can compare that to how big it looks, you can calculate a distance, and then way big stuff, we rely on cosmological models, uh, piling in all of our information and our knowledge of general relativity to calculate distances, calculate time since the Big Bang. So there's a many, many, many layers that all build off of each other and all overlap so we can cross-check. This is something we call the distance ladder. To measure distances from planets next door to the edge of the observable universe. Fun question, Randy. I think we got more time. Greg, hit me up. Hello, Dr. Sutter. This is Jim from Mexico. And I have a couple of questions I would really enjoy hearing your answer to. The first one is, I understand that once one enters the event horizon of a black hole, all that remains is a one-way trip to the singularity. My question is, in what ways is our one-way travel through time analogous to such a one-way trip inside a black hole? And in what ways do they differ according to our present state of knowledge? Okay, my other question while I'm at it is, if the rate of acceleration of the expansion of the universe is increasing, that would lead to the big rip, what would be the effect on black holes? Would they be turned into white holes when the effect of lambda exceeds the effect of the gravitational constant? Thank you, I enjoy your program. And I'll sure enjoy hearing your answers. Jim, to your first question about once you cross the event horizon of a black hole and then you fall to the singularity, it is a one-way trip. You cannot avoid it. You will hit the singularity. How is that related to us out here outside of black holes? We have a one-way trip into the future. So what happens at the event horizon? The event horizon of black hole is a very special place where this flip happens, where your forward march into the future gets flipped into a forward march into the singularity, into a location in space. That's exactly what happens at the event horizon. The boundary of a black hole is this switch happens that defines a black hole. That's it as far as the connection or the relation, except that's that's what happens is these two things get flipped. Your other question I'm going to save for after the break. I'm Paul Sutter. This is Space Radio, and this show is brought to you by you. Why haven't you contributed yet? I am sorely disappointed in you. It's okay. You can you can do whatever you want. Patreon.com slash PM Sutter. Let's learn how you can support this show. See you after the break. Support for 90.5 WCBE and Space Radio comes from Thompson Hine, a business law firm serving clients for more than a century. Thompson Hine provides innovative client service through SmartPath, a smarter way to work, predictable, efficient, and aligned with client goals. More information about the firm at thompsonhine.com. 
Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We've got so many questions ready to go, but remember, you can join the conversation by leaving an online voicemail or by following the live streams. Go to spaceradioshow.com for the link. Starting off, I'm going to go with Jim's second question about the big rip. There is a potential scenario where the accelerated expansion of our universe, something we call dark energy, is just going to get even worse. And it's literally going to rip the universe apart. It's going to rip atoms apart and galaxies and people and just everything. It will re- it will rip Greg out of my grasp. How tragic is that? Now, what Jim is asking, what about black holes? Black holes are places of infinite gravity. So it's like what happens when an infinitely strong force meets an immovable object. Who's going to win, big rip or black holes? The answer is we don't know. Because we don't know really what's happening at the center of a black hole. And in the big rip scenario, like the quantum nature of reality, space-time itself is getting torn apart. So what happens to the quantum nature of reality, the singularity at the center of a black hole? Tough question, and we don't really have an answer. So I'm just going to put it out there and say, let's hope we never find out. Now, we've got so many Space Cadet questions, so I think it's time for another lightning round. Are you guys ready? Doesn't matter, because here we go. Bob Bob on YouTube is asking, why do we have the Oort cloud? Do all stars have one? So the Oort cloud is formed from the formation of the solar system, from all the, the mixing and stirring and collision and all the chaos happening in a solar system right when we form, just kicks all the junk, all the debris, all the leftover bits to the outermost parts of the solar system. This is what the Oort cloud is. And yes, we think every single star, I'm sure there are some special circumstances, but in general, every star is going to get its own Oort cloud. Next, also Bob Bob, how does Pluto have mountains without plate tectonics? Right, so you can get mountain building in many, many different ways. Remember, Pluto hasn't always been frozen solid. When it first formed, it was molten, there was magma, there were big chunks of rock, big ice flows and everything that shaped and sculpted it, and then it froze in that position. And the mountains of Pluto aren't made of rock. The mountains of Pluto are made of pure water ice. Like imagine an ice cube the size of Mount Everest. That's what we're talking about when it comes to mountains on Pluto. And these are all shaped by gravity, by heat from the interior, by all sorts of forces that can shape uh, and poke, poke and squeeze at a planet other than plate tech. Tonics. Matthew DeFleur on YouTube, do you think there is life on Mars or Europa? <sighs> Mars, you know, billions of years ago looked a lot like the Earth with rivers and oceans and sandy beaches, the whole deal. Life appeared on Earth under same conditions at the same time. Was there life on Mars? Maybe. Is there life on Mars now? Ooh, that's a toughie. Because the air is like poisonous and it's freezing cold and they, all the water is frozen. Maybe there's something eking out in existence under the surface. <sighs> I'm going to give it slim to none chances. That's my personal opinion, though. Europa, underneath the layer of ice. Europa is the second moon of Jupiter. Thick layer of ice. Liquid water ocean. A lot of liquid water. 
Is there life? Mm, This is my personal opinion, probably guided by a lot of hope and wishful thinking. I'm giving it 50-50s. 50-50 chance that there's life on Europa. Nerdy Rodent on YouTube. Just how much of a threat are these quote-unquote hazardous asteroids in Earth's orbit? You know, there's lots of asteroids floating around the solar system. Some of them cross the Earth's orbit. Some of them tail our orbit. NASA is tracking as many as we can. The potentially hazardous ones are the ones that actually do cross our orbit. But like our orbit is gigantic. You know, we're one tiny little planet, 93 million miles away from the sun. Our orbit is huge. There's a lot of space. There's a lot of nothing. And so the actual chances of hitting one of these asteroids, even though they cross our orbit, are very, very slim that they actually cross the planet itself. That said, we're always tracking it. We always have to keep it updated because any tiny little change in the orbit can turn it from like totally harmless asteroid that nobody cares about to danger zone asteroid. Every once in a while, we get a rock coming within the orbit of the moon, but the moon is super far away. Honestly, I'm not really worried about an asteroid hitting the earth. Yes, asteroids and comets hit the Earth on geological and astronomical timescales, not on human timescales. So I'm, I'm sleeping comfortably at night. Zaroth Jacoby is asking, galaxies have dark matter halos to explain the increased speed of the stars. But wouldn't dark matter spread around the outer edges of the galaxy work to pull it all apart? So... You're exactly right. We're observing the motions of stars inside of galaxies, and we use this to map out the existence of dark matter. And when you look at a galaxy, there's like a central bulge, there's a disky thing, there are some arms, there's some globular clusters banging around. The dark matter itself is largely smoothly distributed all through the galaxy and beyond the galaxy too, uh, sometimes several times the radius of the galaxy itself. So the, the galaxy is like just one little light up part in the center of the dark matter. But when you work out all the gravity of all this smoothly distributed ball of dark matter, the stuff on the outside doesn't really matter, one, because it's far away. And if there's a tug in one direction from the dark matter, it's counteracted by dark matter on the opposite side. So it all kind of balances out. What matters is the dark matter that's flowing through the galaxy itself, and that is what causes the extra gravity to speed up the stars. Jack Malone on YouTube, would the asteroid change color, this is presumably 6478 Galt, change color in visible light, or would it be strictly infrared? As far as we can tell, they, the astronomers only study the infrared emissions from this asteroid. I really don't think visually you're going to see much. It's going to look like a boring gray rock, but it is emitting light in the infrared. It's glowing a little bit in the infrared, and that's where the changes are going to be most apparent. Maybe if you had super sensitive eyes, there might be some tiny change in the visible part of the spectrum, but I'm going to bet no. Thank you for all these amazing questions from the Space Gets. We're almost out of time today on Space Radio, but before we go... It's time for the Blue Shift. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio, and this is the Blue Shift, my opportunity 
to get a little bit closer to you. And a theme that I've been really drawn to over the past few years as I've done more and more outreach is, you know, there's this like vaguely hippie, mystical, like, oh, we're all connected. We're connected to the universe. And in in terms of like horoscopes or energy levels or aura, we're not because those aren't things. But we are connected to the universe in a much more deeper way and to my mind a much more beautiful way where you look around or look at your own body and just realize that every single atom in you came from some cosmic source right the hydrogen and helium inside of you if there's a lot of helium inside of you you might want to talk to a doctor but the hydrogen in you was forged in the first 20 minutes of the existence of the universe and it's been around Think of the journey it's had over the past 13.8 billion years before it ended up in your body. You know, and the, the carbon and oxygen was forged in some star that's now long dead. You know, and the, the phosphorus, the iron, the gold, these were all formed in, in cataclysmic supernova explosions or, or neutron stars smashing into each other. And they've traveled thousands, millions, maybe even billions of light years to congeal into this solar system to make a planet Earth and then get to participate in life. That's just really fun to think about. You know, point to something near you and imagine the journey of the atoms of what they had to go through over 13 billion years to get in front of you. And speaking of going places, we are doing a cruise, a stargazing cruise of the Caribbean. We did one last year, and it was so much fun. We were on the bow of the ship every single night, looking at the gorgeous stars above the Caribbean Sea. We were visiting some mine ruins. You know, the mines were like really into Venus and had some amazing accurate calendars and giant giant temples that were all astronomically significant. So we were touring Mayan ruins. We were stargazing. We were doing shows. We were having a great time. If you're looking for a vacation in August of next year, why don't you go on vacation with me and we go nerd out together? That sounds pretty fun. Go to astro.tours. That's astro.tours. And you can fill out a form, put down a deposit, get your name on the list. Availability is limited. We didn't book the whole entire cruise ship, just a small portion of it. So availability is limited. So get your registration in now and take the whole family. Man, it would be so much fun to go on vacation with you. And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by you. Visit patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can contribute. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing, Nancy Graziano for wrangling the space gets, and all the fine crew at WCBE Radio for making this show possible. Catch the live stream every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Visit spaceradioshow.com for more info. And of course, thanks again, Space Cadets, for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing and transmission.